0: Thank you for listening to this lunchtime talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, Associate Curator of Prints, Drawings and Photographs, Maria Zagala, introduces the exhibition Picasso, the Volard Suite. Picasso made the works, well, more, almost half of the works in a burst of activity over six weeks in 1933 and those prints primarily represent the sculptor, in his studio. And so the prints are organised in this exhibition around the walls of this room and behind the wall behind me. The way that Sally Foster and I have organised the prints in the exhibition is to display them in groups which tells an unfolding story of uh, the representation of this artist in his studio the way that Picasso dramatizes the um, artist and projects if you like a autobiographical element into the prints is fascinating and has resulted in I think works that are very unusual dreamlike and that aspect of the dream has is extended in this exhibition by the inclusion of a film by Picasso's friend and artistic collaborator Cocteau, The Blood of a Poet, and that film from 1930 is screening in this room to my right. Now that film, it's I think it's wonderful to see the imagery of this kind of very surreal, dreamlike world that Cocteau evokes, where everyday objects are seen as a kind of mm, launching point into another world, a world of intuition and strange happenings. Likewise, Picasso's prints uh, also propel us into another world but the world that he describes initially is grounded in the details of an artist's studio. And Picasso's own life and the reading of these prints has often been through the details of his autobiography. And that's something that Picasso certainly uh, encouraged. And he often spoke of his prints and his work as a form of a diary. And in this case these prints bear his the date and uh, if he made more than one print on one day a Roman numeral which tells us that it's the first or the second, the third or even the fourth print that he's made on a given day. What's fascinating is to compare those prints, some of them made on the one day and to find that they are entirely different from each other. So initially, if you cast your eye over the room, you see that many of the prints have this very fine, very beautiful, neoclassical line. So he's drawn in this very fluid line and created works that are read um, as a very calm and uh, considered um, way. And I was thinking that they remind me of calligraphy in the way that with calligraphy you feel that there isn't any hesitation to that line. And that is what we find in many of the prints here. So this bravura, this virtuosity, which sings, really. So when I mentioned the autobiographical element, the diary-like um, aspect of Picasso's prints, I... Um, Part of the reading of this extraordinary series of the artist, which many interpret as a self-portrait of Picasso himself, is that Picasso had started an affair, a clandestine affair, with a young girl, Therese, um, Marie-Thérèse Walter, uh, in around 1927, when she was 17 and he was 45. And... Many of these prints were made in 1933. So they had a a long affair and it caused the end of his marriage to his wife Olga in 1935 when Marie Therese fell pregnant with their daughter Maya and uh, Picasso soon left uh, Marie Therese for uh, Dora Maar not long after that. So... Many of you may um, have seen the um, viral sensation of Nanette by Anna Gatsby, which really provoked me to think about this exhibition and the imagery in a different way. The Picasso, through really her remarkable stand-up performance, comes out as a horror and the description of the power imbalance between a 17-year-old and this um, old man or mature man is really dramatized by, I think, um, uh, Hannah Gatsby in her way that she's able to convey the way that that power imbalance may affect the personhood, the development of someone at, at that very vulnerable and still young age. Now, I mention that as a backdrop because the works in this suite of 100 prints are about power. And the way that Picasso represents power is fascinating to me. So, the prints in this room, as I mentioned, are about the artist in the studio. And the works show Marie Therese, and her profile is very distinctive. Uh, modelling for this kind of old and bearded sculptor. And you see the the two of them with the sculpture that he has created, often admiring it, and that changes um, over time. And the configurations which he um, makes of the figure, that is the artist, the model, and uh, various other people who come into the studio sort of changes the, um, the what is represented. Again, I mentioned that it's dreamlike because it seems unlikely that that is what his studio looked like. So it's a, I would say, a metaphorical representation of a dynamic of creation. And Picasso was very interested in this. He had made a book, um, an illustrated book, to Balzac's The Unfinished Masterpiece, which is actually in the case in this room and so he in 1930 had already worked on prints which were about this process of artistic creation and its impossibility so this theme was very important to him and he used the uh, the story of Ovid's metamorphosis and in particular the story of Pygmalion and Galatea the sculptor who brings his uh, creation to life and falls in love with it. Um, I was drawn to a really interesting quote by Picasso in preparing this talk where um, he was discussing with his dealer Kahnweiler the process of making and how you approach this realism realism in art. And I'll just read you the quote because it... He's quite sort of. I think it tells you something about the strangeness of these prints. He's talking about the um, the Balzac story and the figure of the artist in the Balzac story who can never finish his creation. And he says that's the marvelous thing with Frénhofer, and Frénhofer is the character. At the end, nobody can see anything except himself. Thanks to the never-ending search for reality, he ends up in black obscurity. There are so many realities that in trying to encompass them all, one ends in darkness. That is why when one paints a portrait, one must stop somewhere. In a sort of caricature otherwise there would be nothing left at the end. And I think about that when I look at these works because it's like every print tells a slightly different story from a different angle and yet the dynamic seems to be mm, consistent and a thread that runs throughout almost all the prints. Now, I mentioned the sculptor's studio, which are the prints in this room, as being important, and that is because Picasso had moved uh, to a country property outside of Paris uh, in 1930, and he uh, established a large studio where he started making or re-engaged with sculpture as a medium. So his sculptures from this time, 1930, 31, 32, are these very strange, bulbous heads that resemble Marie Therese. And those heads and those forms, you can see throughout the prints. So when you look at the faces of the sculptures that Picasso has created or the artist, it is this strange form of uh, Marie Therese. Um, Now I'm going to attempt to move us around the corner. So follow me. So, as you can see, that the exhibition has these small groupings and as you follow the works around the room, you see the sculptor creating his statues. In the prints here on this wall, you have, again, this very classical-looking sculptor modelled like uh, a figure from classical antiquity. He even has the remnants of... Uh, classical sculptures at his feet. So you get this sense of Picasso, um, the artist, measuring himself against the history of art. Precisely this time, he was uh, the subject of a major retrospective and so he was very conscious of his uh, legacy and the fact that he was going down in history as this major artist. As I say, he's very consciously through his um, works, measuring himself against other artists. Who are those? So classical art, and you see that through this, as I call it, the neoclassical line in these prints. He's referencing Ong in particular, the great 19th century French painter. He's referencing, through his etchings, Rembrandt. Rembrandt, who was unsurpassed in the history of Western uh, printmaking For with his uh, references to uh, Rembrandt's style, even the topic of the artist in his studio. And he's also referencing uh, this... He's very aware of his place... Um, in creating something entirely new. He's here in, as I mentioned, the artist in his studio. The imagery takes a radical break or shift in tone when he starts representing the artist as a minotaur, half man, half half beast from Greek mythology, a form or a figure that really is a form of self-representation. The half-man, half-beast representing these, what he represents as two sides of human nature, or maybe male nature, uh, the aggressive, libidinous, and the thinking, intellectual. So as I mentioned, the earlier scenes have this tranquility to them, yet in these scenes, Prints of the minotaur, you see a very uh, <clears throat> kind of uh, the, the mood shift and the motif here is of the sleeping woman being uh, observed by this minotaur or fawn. So here in these marvellous prints. And I've included this work here by Anibale Karachi from uh, the 1590s because it shows this Italian artist representing the very same uh, subject in in that period. So, this imagery, which we read as part of this self-representation, is linked to this uh, imagery in the history of art. Picasso does something that's very unusual, and the reading of this series has confounded art historians. It's almost um, comical to try and uh, read the uh, interpretations of these works, which falter. It's incredibly hard for art historians to describe what is happening in these works. It is, I believe, because they have a, um, they build on one another And, as I say, it's like a a hundred-part work. The the pieces on the back of the wall here in this space represent the bullfight. So this bull man becomes a bullfighter. And we have here scenes of a female bullfighter as well. And the female bullfighter has the face of Marie Therese. And she, I thought, was being gorged by the bull, but one art historian has interpreted her as making love to the bull. So her she certainly um, has her eyes closed, her mouth open, I thought, in anguish, but it could be an orgasm. So it's this very strange imagery that is violent and sexual um, and, as I say, difficult to um, to read. What's fascinating is that if you look at the prints together, they're created almost on the same day and yet their style is entirely different. So I might just point out those ex- an example of that. Here we've got the female bullfighter and just... A couple of prints down here she is again in this kind of very um, I don't know how to describe this actually the way that it's drawn is totally without tone it's very crude almost and the print has these three lines through it almost as though Picasso is cancelling the plate so which was a practice that artists did, putting a line through the work to show that there would be no more impressions pulled from that plate. But that's not the case here. This is... He's incorporated these three violent lines into the work. And again, the naked woman with the face of Marie Therese in the (coughs) foreground with the horse uh, and the bull in the arena... So this kind of... Next to them you'll see Goya and, of course, um, Picasso was very influenced by Goya um, and the representation of the bullfight. So P- Picasso, as a Spaniard, identified with uh, bullfighting as a national sport and he and Marie Therese would go to bullfights in, in the 1930s together. So this was a, a big part of their... Um, Uh, how they spent time and it's this ritualistic display of power and death in this arena is enacted by Picasso with the faces of his young lover and the Minotaur as the, the, the form that's vanquished. So these works have been interpreted as commentary on the tensions that existed in Europe at this time and the rise of fascism and they have of course been interpreted through the lens of his autobiography and his situation at this time was reaching this extreme point where uh, Marie Therese was soon to fall pregnant his, um, Picasso's wife would leave him and his life would be changed dramatically. So, if we follow on into this um, space, you can also see that minotaur figure carousing and drinking and rather than observing the woman, sleeping woman, he's now cavorting, having sex with her, and that imagery then morphs into rape. So the last five works on this wall are depictions of rape. And I was thinking about how rare it is to actually have the representation of rape in art that is not through the distancing mechanism of mythology So here we don't have a sense of um, a particular myth that he may be referencing. It is this display of power of the woman who is subjugated. The violence of that is contrasted with two prints on the opposite wall which show, as I say, the matador or the minotaur dying in the bullring. So... They're very poignant works and then the imagery shifts again in the um, viewing room next door and that is the last five prints uh, of the blind minotaur. So here the minotaur has become completely dependent on, his, on a young girl and that young girl is a child who has the face of Marie Therese and she leads him. This blind figure is relying on her, so he has lost his sight. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, this figure of Marie Therese is, I think, in in these prints, his muse, his lover, his victim and his salvation. So, I might just say a few words about the unusual kind of way that these prints have come into the world. They um, were created, as I mentioned, by Picasso in this period of the eight, in the 1930s as a commission. But then Vollard tragically was killed in a car accident in 1939. And the works had already been printed, so there was an edition of 260 and a printer, Le Courrier, had made all of these, uh, you know, thousands of impressions, and all of them were neatly stacked with Vollard, but Vollard died, and all of his possessions in his remarkable art collection went to his brother. Then, of course, the war started, and it was not until the 1940s that the prints were circulated in the art market, So those remarkable prints were sold to Henri Pétier, a French print dealer, who then individually sold them, all as sets, but that was more rare, uh, throughout the 1940s and 50s. So that is how they came to be circulated. Therefore, it's remarkably rare to have a full set. And the National Gallery of Australia has a full set here at the Art Gallery of South Australia, we have one work from the Vollard Suite, and that is of the fawn observing the sleeping woman. So, it's yeah incredibly uh, an incredibly rich resource that we have in Australia with this collection. Uh, so the work circulated. I think that the um, they were extremely that um, Vollard had a very ambitious program for them here. He must have uh, thought to distribute them in as a major group, as a deluxe edition, but with his death there was nothing recorded in his papers about how they were to be distributed, nor was there any description of their order. So that is something that has really been established by art historians since... So there is no specific way that you are meant to look at them, no specific order, as I say, and it's, you know, up to you and um, and the curators who present the exhibitions to um, provide some kind of context. I might leave it there. Well, thank you very much for coming and please enjoy the exhibition um, and enjoy the drawing room, which is a fantastic resource that we've conceived around the the theme of drawing um, which is part of the exhibition too, thank you.